Hello, 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 and welcome into another edition of the Sports Kiki Podcast. My name, of course, is Alex Reamer. It is episode number 129 here on this Saturday, August 20th, as we march towards the end of our final full summer month. Oh, wah. Always a time of melancholy for me. I do like the fall as an adult, but it still kind of feels like the first day of school, does it not? But talking with you all every week always lifts my spirits. You can find the show wherever you can find your favorite Outsports podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google. You know the drill. Download, listen, rate, subscribe. The football gods must be listening. That's right. On the show last week, I spoke with Fox Sports NFL reporter Henry McKenna about Carl Nassib's prolonged free agency. And what would you know? On Monday night, we got the word from Adam Schefter that Nassib has signed a one-year contract with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So Nassib returns to where he started his NFL career, and he returns to a Super Bowl favorite. That's right, Carl Nassib could be playing deep into the playoffs and also alongside Tom Brady, assuming Brady's unexplained absence from training camp isn't indicative of anything more serious. Arsid Ziegler wrote on Outsports this week that Carl Nassib signing with the Bucks is one of the greatest moments in LGBTQ sports history. Sid is exactly right. It's one thing for Carl Nassib to publicly come out as he did last year and then play a full season in the NFL with the Las Vegas Raiders. It's another thing for Nassib to then reach free agency and a different team to pick him up as an out gay player. It shows that being openly gay did not affect Carl Nassib's NFL career one iota. And that's an incredible thing. And that is something that hopefully puts away that old, tired stereotype that the NFL and elite male team sports in general are so homophobic and so bigoted that anybody who comes out risks losing it all. And it would be easy to think that, and it's tempting to think that, despite all of the coming out stories we publish on Outsports, high school athletes, college athletes, recreational athletes, they almost all tell stories of widespread acceptance, getting embraced by their teammates, all the women who are out in uh, professional sports as well, all the out Olympians, but you look at elite male team sports and you don't see a lot of examples. You see Michael Sam, who was publicly out when the Rams drafted him in the last round of the draft, but he never made it onto an NFL roster. You look at Jason Collins, who, yes, came out towards the very end of his NBA career. The Nets did sign him the following season, but we haven't had a player follow in his footsteps. We had Robbie Rogers come out and win a cup in the MLS. Colin Martin has come out as well. He also played in the MLS, but no out gay male soccer players in the MLS since then. Go on down the line. Carl Nassib is one of a kind, and he's showing that Being gay did not negatively impact his NFL career at all. So it's a great story. It validates a lot of what we've been preaching here at Outsports. And to add to that point, Nassib signed with the Buccaneers 
just three days after professional pitcher Solomon Bates signed with a pro baseball team after he publicly came out. So those stereotypes will still exist, but now reality is pushing back against them. And Nassib signing with a legit Super Bowl favorite just makes it all the more sweeter. He'll be featured on a ton of primetime games this year. And also, it puts to bed that narrative that you can't win with an out-gay player. That an out-gay player would negatively impact team chemistry. The Buccaneers clearly don't care about that. So why should anybody else? And now we'll see. Now that Nassib has been signed by a different team in free agency, now we'll see if the dominoes start to fall. So Solomon Bates signs, Carl Nassib signs. It's a banner week when it comes to LGBTQ sports. And obviously we'll follow Carl intently as the training camp and the season progresses. But coming up on the other side, Switching away from sports just a little bit. I like to do this once in a while, especially here in the summer months. Dr. Lori Essig is a professor at Middlebury College in Vermont, and she co-wrote a very controversial essay that appeared in the Boston Globe recently titled, Bachelorette Parties in P-Town Often Destroy Safe Spaces for LGBTQ People. It's apropos... I spoke with Lori this week because I'm in Provincetown for Carnival. I love going a few times per summer. Feel blessed and lucky to go again here at the end of August. And yeah, I notice it every time I go. P-Town is an amazing special place, but those damn bachelorette parties. Dr. Lori Essig is coming up on the other side of this break. I talked to her about her piece, what prompted her to write her piece, and what this says about gay culture as a whole. It's a great conversation. It's coming up next on the Sports Kiki. Thank you, as always, for listening. And welcome back to the show. As I mentioned in the opening, very excited to welcome on uh, my guest this week. And as I was also saying, very apropos because I'm off to P-Town for Carnival Week in just a few days. Uh, Dr. Lori Essig is a professor and director of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Middlebury College. Her most recent book is Love, Inc., Dating apps, big white weddings, and chasing the happily never after. Ooh, I like that. Uh, Lori, thanks for coming on. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. Yes, and uh, I definitely appreciated your recent op-ed in the Boston Globe, uh, which you co-wrote, Bachelorette Parties in P-Town Often Destroy Safe Spaces for LGBTQ plus people. Before we go further, let me just ask, what prompted you and your co-writer to write this piece? So I have a chapter in my forthcoming book on bachelorette parties in Provincetown. I was able to have the pleasure of doing field work, participant observation, and interviews with both bachelorette participants and people who were LGBTQ and out for the night in Provincetown. And I did that research in the summer of 2019, in June and July of 2019, Uh, and then the pandemic happened, and all sorts of things. But that chapter is written, and I had done a little TikTok video about it, and a former student of mine, uh, Professor Vincent Jones, saw it and said, oh, I have this great term, heterification, huh. like gentrification, yes. 
for when straight people take over queer spaces. And I said, that's great. Let's, let's write a piece together. And so that's how the piece came together. It was my research, but his concept, which I like a lot of this process that is, has real effects and has to do with money and isn't that different than gentrification. Although obviously there are different racial implications than gentrification processes. Yeah, no, definitely. It's very interesting. Um, I'm curious though, we were talking before you identify as a lesbian and a lot of people really view Provincetown, especially today as kind of a playground for strictly only, maybe not strictly only, but largely for gay men and really a prototype of a white you know, attractive, uh, financially successful gay man. I'm wondering, do you, what is your kind of your view on that? And what prompted you specifically to explore this piece of research given uh, your identity? So I think it's a problem nationwide. It's not just a problem right. in Provincetown. And as you know, a lot of LGBTQ spaces have been disappearing. I believe we're down to three lesbian bars in the nation. Right. Uh, I'm not blaming that on straight people in any way. Please <laughs> don't get me wrong. But there is a process whereby these spaces are being absorbed, taken up, and moved moved to pop-ups or random events rather than permanent locations. Right. And that process is worth noting. And one thing I've I've noticed both in New York City, where I spend a lot of time, or in Provincetown, or in Boston, where I used to spend a lot of time, that bachelorette parties are increasingly a part of dance clubs and, and drag shows. And right. so I knew this was a nationwide phenomenon, and I knew it was increasingly happening in Provincetown. So although we can acknowledge that Provincetown is this incredibly white, incredibly wealthy, primarily cisgendered gay male space, although not just, we can also see that this is a larger process that's taking right. part throughout the country. Um, so I, I think I think it's worth considering, even though we might say, oh, you know, maybe we don't have as much sympathy and empathy for the uh, participants in Provincetown gay life. I also think it's worth noting there's still LGBTQ members there's still right. laws going on the books in Florida to not say gay. There are all sorts of anti-trans laws all over the country. Uh, there's still a kind of uh, book burning going on throughout schools throughout the United States of anything with LGBTQ content. So however wealthy and however racially privileged the men of Provincetown are, they also are people who made these spaces as safe spaces in a culture that has never been completely uh, completely accepting of queer identities of yeah. whatever sort. Yeah, I think that's so right. And, you know, one thing that I've always said about Provincetown and why I seek out these exclusive, you know, these, these very specifically gay spaces is, yes, like as a gay man in Boston, I can blend in anywhere, but you know, sometimes I don't want to just blend in with a group of polo shirts and khaki pants, you know? I want to dance in my harness. Right. And having women there ruins that space. Bachelorette parties, it just does. There's <laughs> no other way to explain it. Yeah, and that that's what the the men and women and other gendered people I spoke with there told me is for them it makes the spaces very unwelcoming and they often feel like they're zoo exhibits, right? right? So they're, you know, some some straight women are taking pictures of the leather daddies behind them kissing and then putting it on their Instagram. That's that makes them feel like they're on uh, on exhibit in this way that's like a freak show. 
And somebody just told me, somebody wrote to me from Provincetown after the piece came out to tell me that uh, a bunch of the Bachelorettes had shown up on it on the Bear Cruise. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was really uh, disheartening. You know, this is a space for bears to be on a cruise together, to flirt, to hook up, to do whatever they're doing. And there were a bunch of drunken Bachelorettes on there. And to be fair to the Bachelorettes, I really understand why they're there. They're not bad people. They're not explicitly homophobic people. That was not my experience of them at all. But they're people who are fleeing the rape culture of straight spaces. These women don't feel comfortable getting really drunk and right. dancing with their girlfriends in straight spaces. So I think the larger question is, is what is it about toxic straight masculinity hmm. that makes LGBTQ people need to create safe spaces and straight women need to create safe right. spaces, right? That, the real issue is that sort of masculinity that makes those places unsafe for all of us. That is a great point. That it's, it's the toxic straight men. It really almost always comes back to them. Um, but it always does. <laughs> it always does. But yeah, because I was going to ask. I mean, your piece has generated a lot of response. Um, and yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I, I read the Globe as online today, Monday. They ran a bunch of uh, letters to the editor, if you will, about your op-ed. And a lot of women say that they feel like they're being unfairly chastised for seeking out safe spaces, but you're saying that, well, again, the point goes, why does everybody seem like they need to stake out safe spaces from, you know, this toxic straight culture? Yes, exactly. And as someone who's not marrying one of those toxic men, I guess I would ask the bachelorettes to think about what culture they're participating in, that that's the case, Hmm. right? How are they, how are they also part of it? And how does toxic femininity play into it? Because one of the things these women do is often make queer women and lesbian women feel uncomfortable in these spaces. So I interviewed hmm. uh, a queer woman who uh, had in front of me, I, I, I witnessed a fight between some LGBTQ people and some bachelorettes on the street. And so I watched it and recorded what I could and then asked people if they would do an interview later. And during that fight, this woman said to them, hey, would any of you go out with me? And they they responded with revulsion, like, ooh, that's disgusting. And so that that is also a thing that happens in these spaces is this toxic hetero, white hetero femininity right. can make queer women feel even more uncomfortable in a space that they are not the major, majority. But right. there are, as you know, lesbian women in Provincetown who also feel the need to be able to dance without toxic masculinity around them. Yeah, that is a good point. I was going to ask you to talk a little more about how you think this interacts with queer women and, you know, gay women. So, Yeah, I think uh, I interviewed a couple of them who had those responses from the, the Bachelorette. And my experience interviewing the Bachelorette is I would always ask, are there any bi or uh, lesbian or queer women in your group? And they always answered either no or I don't know, as if, <laughs> Being a queer woman is not even worthy of discussion. Uh, So I found that really interesting, right? These are groups of very heteronormative, very gender normative women who are coming into spaces with queer women who are trying to negotiate that and making them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And, you know, I I read, I was reading uh, a book over the weekend, The Gay Bar by Jeremy Atherton Lynn, and I felt very excited because I'm like, I'm going to sound very smart talking to Laurie where I can cite this passage. But I really do think that it fits into a lot of what you're talking about 
because as we know that women have, you know, straight women have always been synonymous in some ways with gay men, you know, fag hags. But, you know, this book has a great line saying the misogynistic old trope of a lonely heart attached to sexual criminals out of compatible ostracization has been replaced by one of basic bitches latching on because the gays turned out to be winners. And when I see these white straight women screaming Yas Queen, drinking $15 vodka sodas at these gay bars in Provincetown, I say, that's really it right there, you know? It's basic bitches latching on to gays because they turned out to be winners. And that also, I think, adds yeah. to kind of the revulsion of it. Yeah, no, I think so. Gay, gay men did turn out to be winners. I think queer and lesbian women... Not so much, right? right? And uh and and in our culture, you know, the will and grace phenomenon is real. Straight these straight women imagine that gay men want to be friends with them, right? right? That they want this attention, that they want them to grab their ass. And it's just not actually true. But you can't it's difficult to break through privileged space, right? It's difficult as with a gentrifier who buys an apartment in a historic a white gentrifier who buys an apartment in a historically black or Latinx neighborhood, it's very difficult for them to understand that you aren't necessarily welcome, right? Like you and your $8 lattes are not necessarily what people need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's, I think that's hard for privilege to understand that. Um, and I say that as someone who, you know, has been a white gentrifier in <laughs> Uh, in Brooklyn for most of my life, it, it is it is difficult to understand that you need to be respectful. You need to try to not change the neighborhood. You need to try to right. actually be in the neighborhood as it is. Right? Those if 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 straight women came into queer bars and acted in a way that was respectful and wasn't attempting to right. make it over in their image, I think people would have a different response. Right? Like, what would you care? Right. But the truth is they're they're sexually harassing you. They're saying really mean comments to the lesbian and queer women. They're they're appropriating culture that's not theirs. Uh, right. even shouting yes queen. It's like <laughs> that's not your culture. It's, it's right. just not. Yeah. And I guess I also want to ask you too, Laurie, it's it's this is such an overarching question. Um, but you know, the future of gay nightlife, you know, I think it's interesting, like the gay bar is dying is such an old cliche. And I do think, you know, that is true to a very large extent. But mm-hmm. you talk, but you talk about more like, you know, I look at my experience, right? Like if I go to, let's say San Francisco, I was there a few weeks ago. So I'll use that an example. And if you go to, you know, the gay bars around the Castro area, it is filled with women, bachelorette parties, etc. But if you go to the more and you were talking about this earlier, more the the so-called ticketed events, you know, kind of the more pop-up circuit parties. That's all gay men. That is no bachelorette parties because I think also there's like an expensive entry fee, fee too. So, you know, so like if you're gay and you don't want the women, you can go to a lot of these more ticketed, slightly underground events. But those are also very exclusionary too because unlike the gay bar, there's a huge entry fee, both in terms of looks and money and I don't know. So I, I, I'm just, I'm, I know I'm just kind of babbling, but I really think that's kind of where we're going, where maybe the more exclusive gay spaces, and I'm talking for gay men because that's my experience, I think are these more ticketed, roving events. But, you know, that's not great because the gay bar has historically been just such a welcome place where people can go. And that's, you know, where you see a lot of these bachelorette parties. Yeah. And I think about the person who uh, maybe isn't 
out in the world, maybe right. isn't on the list for the pop-up parties, right. and maybe can't afford them as well. Right. And I think that, you know, what we lost, and I think it is lost, I think you're right, the, the gay bar is probably completely petrified, and nobody will ever go to a drag show again <laughs> for women on bachelorette parties. But what do we lose, right? We lose a space that is a community-building space. We lose a space that is a was a cultural production space. I mean, I think about drag shows and and what we lose when those no longer belong to LGBTQ culture. That's that's a lot. Uh, but I guess that is the way of the world. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't also say we lost something. We're mourning what we lost when these bachelorette parties showed up. Dr. Lori Essig, she's co-author of The Peace in the Globe, Bachelorette Parties in P-Town Often Destroy Safe Spaces for LGBTQ Plus People. Lori, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it. All right. So thanks again to Lori Essig for taking the time coming on the show. I could talk about that kind of stuff all day. I really could. Uh, If you have any show ideas, guest ideas, topic ideas, shoot me a line on Twitter. Against my better judgment, DMs are open. At AlexRemer1 is my username. That again is at AlexRemer1. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you on the show next Saturday.